Lord, I thank you for the blessed opportunity to read your word and then to sit down and study it, Lord. It's one thing to read through the Bible and it's another thing to study it verse by verse and try to get your mind around why you wrote this particular passage, why this was important, why the detail in this text, why the repetition. And then realize, Lord, that still that repetition is still from you and has a purpose. And so, Lord, help us discover those things. Help us to apply those things to our lives, Lord. We thank you for the rain tonight. We pray for those who weren't able to come. We, we ask that you would help them to be able to tune in if possible tonight. And then we think of those who just can't. They're struggling with illnesses, Lord. We pray that you would just be merciful to them. Give them strength to finish well, Lord. Lord, thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at atonement, particularly through sacrifice, and that's what we're looking at tonight, um, it, it really is the heart of biblical worship. The more I study the atonements, the sacrificial system, the Old Testament, it shows that that is the heart of the law. The heart of the law is worship of the Lord. Reconciling God and man. Providing a way for man to dwell and be in a relationship with God. So every time you look at atoning passages, which these are one of them. We're going to talk about a lot of feasts and atonements here. That is the heart. That's the heart of the Bible. It desires for us to have worship. And when you get into the Old Testament, and throughout the Old Testament particularly, particularly the Pentateuch, you see this heart of worship. God desires a connection, a clear relationship with his people, and he always provides a way to him. It may be temporary in the Old Testament because sacrifice of, and blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And, and though it had a temporal role, it was all flowing towards this redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, much of the material we get into in chapters 28 and 29 here have been discussed. They're, they're feast and sacrifices that we saw in the book of Exodus. We saw them again in the book of Leviticus and even some of the early, earlier uh, chapters in Numbers, we, we saw them. But, and so when I come to them, I, I said, okay, Lord, why repeat the laws and, uh, of the atonement here? Um, what, what, they don't change like some of the other laws do. For instance, last week we looked at uh, Zelophehad, I can't even pronounce his name now. Um, they, they, they made an adaption to that law as those ladies, as the daughters came forward. But when you come to the atonement, there's no change in them. Those atoning laws remain the same, and yet they're often repeated. So I thought of several reasons as I studied why maybe chapters like this are here. Well, I think first and foremost, there's a new generation. When the law was given back in Exodus... Uh, these many of these people weren't even born yet, if not all of them. And so the olds died off, including the priesthood, including the Levit Levitical tribe. Those that were older died off. And so now you have this new generation, and this new generation is about ready to go into the promised land, and this is where they'll carry out these atoning works. They can't do a lot of this in the wilderness. One, they did not have the, the livestock, <laughs> Uh, and the ability to carry all this out. This was all preparing for when they got there. Now, they did do some of this, but all of it was looking forward. There's also new leadership. 
remember last week as we finished 27, we saw that there God was showing he had a new leader to lead the nation. And it, the, the battalion was getting passed from Moses to Joshua. So I think that's part of it here. Joshua is going to be the new leader. He is going to work very closely with the priest. Uh, uh, Eliezer and his son Phineas, those, those are the men he's going to work with. So this is important. And these laws actually are written more to help the priest know, know how to carry these out more than actually than the general population. There's also in chapter 31, we will see here next week, is that they're going to go on and they're going to defeat the Midianites. And probably most of the Moabs with it, they're included in that group. And in that defeat, we'll see in 31, they're going to gain a large track of land. And they're going to get everything that comes with that land. They're going to get cattle and, and lambs and pasture land and all of that's going to come. And so now they're starting to get some ground. They're starting to be where they can actually practice some of these things before they actually cross the, the Jordan and go into Jericho. That, I think, is insightful as well. Also, the instructions added, they, they added more detail here than the previous one. More types of animals are recognized. Numbers of those uh, animals are, that are to be offered up every day and every month and every year that we'll see. And so there's more detail, and I think that's for the priesthood. And you, if you looked at the previous instruction, if you remember back in Exodus and Leviticus when we were working through this, there was an emphasis there on the individual, how they were going to come to God, what they were supposed to bring, this unblemished lamb, and what they were supposed to do with that, how they were supposed to come. This really focuses on how the priests are to handle, handle the sacrificial duties that were given them. But these instructions also act, I think, as a promise themselves, right? They can't actually really perform all of these yet. Uh, so I think in a way, as I thought about this, I thought, Lord, you're giving him these promises ahead of time. This is what you're going to do when you get in the land. He's talking about months and feasts that now are, not, are now coming onto the calendar that are not there. So he says, when the seventh month comes, you're going to do this. So I think what it's saying that there's a promise, he's promising you're going to go into the land. And when you study this, you go, well, how do these people receive this? They're living in tents. They've got enemies up on the hill that they don't even know are trying to curse them and kill them. And yet God's given them promises of, of sacrifices and feasts and, and um, uh, lots of animals that are going to be part of that worship service. And yet they're not even able to do that yet. I think it's a promise that God is going to bring them into the land. Um, when you get into chapter 28, in 29 here, the details of the instructions get, get very clear, um, particularly of the role of the priest. I, I counted it up, and there's at least 113 bulls that die in these two chapters are supposed to talk about their death in, in this year, in the year that they're going to do this. Segment. 32 rams, 186 lambs, um, and more than probably, and, and one, I had to... Uh, reading one guy, he said there's probably more than a ton of finely grained flour that will be offered in that year, let alone bottles of oil and wine. 
that will flow through there. And so thus you kind of get the idea of numbers, right? The book is called Numbers. And so here we're getting numbers of the bulls and numbers of the lambs and rams and, and numbers of the amount of grain and wine and so forth that is to be offered. So clearly Israel was to have to prosper to do this. They could not remain some vagabond group running around the desert um, where there's not a lot of grass, there's not a lot of places to graze cattle and, and grow these type of flocks to just to have the sacrifice, let alone sustain their own families. So clearly, they're going to have to prosper to just to keep the minimum uh, a prescription of animals they need for these sacrifices. Now, you'll notice as the closer they get to, Can- uh, to Canaan, the more the sacrifices are repeated. They keep going back, and you'll see it again when we get into Deuteronomy. He'll go back through some of these again as they get close to go across there. And then the details of the sacrifice get more detailed as they go. And again, remember the book is called Numbers. And so just as at numbering people, there's a lot of other numberings that come within this. When to sacrifice, what day to sacrifice, how much to sacrifice. All of those numbers are seen in each of these things, whether it is um, the sacrifice for each day. You'll see the, the, sap- the Sabbath sacrifice, the first month, first day of the month, um, each feast, and so forth. Uh, many of the commentators that I was reading pointed out the interesting fact of the use of the number seven. In, in this, uh, the, particularly these passages here. In fact, we, we always say, this, you know, seven's a biblical number and seems to be a number of completion um, that is used. But it's interesting. It's seen in the number of lambs. It's seen in the number of great festivals. It's seen in the weekly Sabbath to have observed on the seventh day. There are seven additional days uh, that they were not to work on. There's the seventh month, which is the, one of their biggest celebrations and feasts that take forth. We'll see that here in a minute. Uh, every seventh year, uh, they were to rest the land in its appropriate order when they had received it. And, and, and then by you get to the seventh month, which of the Hebrew calendar, that would be after the harvest, which would be September, October. The, everything has been completely brought in, and they are preparing for the rainy season and their new set of crops. And so it's interesting the use of that. You'll see that throughout these texts as well. These chapters outline once more just the foundational life of Israel as they live their life in the presence of God before the tabernacle. This is their life. This is what they do. They are in the presence of God, in the presence of the tabernacle, every day. And God is in the center of all. Remember, they're all camped around the center. And that's the dwelling of God that is the center of their lives. And so as you read this, there's such a priority of worship. One generation failed. The first one failed. They did not make God the priority of worship, and they died in the wilderness. He is now giving this second generation the opportunity to make worship a priority. And that's what this breaks down. I I know I've read this so many times as I read through the Bible every year. I've read through this so many times, and you kind of, well, you kind of read a little faster when you get to some of these, right? Because it just seems repetitious. And yet there's a great truth. Let me me break it down just in two points today. I want to do chapter 28 and chapter 29. Number one, a new generation learning the meaning of worship. This chapter is broken down into the different sacrifices. And if you look at chapters one through eight, and you can just kind of peruse through this as I talk, and I'll point out certain things as we go so I can get through this in a timely manner. Um, First, we come to the daily sacrifices. 
daily sacrifice. You know there was daily sacrifices. Every day there were sacrifices to be given. They didn't skip days. Every day, 365 days out of the year, there were sacrifices given to God. And what that means when when you study this is there was constant worship before God. Constant. He, he, he wanted worship day and night, morning and evening. He wanted those things brought before them. And it's, um, it, it was such a stumbling block to the nation. They took that for granted. The prophets would remind them of this and they would blow them off. God wants his people constantly worshiping. It's important to him. These covenant sacrifices were not only for their good, but for ours as well as we study them, because they're all pointing towards Christ, and, and we realize that that's true of our lives. God wants to be in the center of our lives. He wants us morning and evening. He wants that relationship with us constantly in connection, in relationship with Him. And as we study this, of course, what's so fun about this, and we're going to end tonight and uh, towards the end in Hebrews 9, working through that, is we see all of these sacrifices in one way or another find their full fulfillment in Christ. In each sacrifices, you can study them all, and I've tried to do that through um, the Pentateuch as I've gone through here. They all bring out unique aspects of Christ's atonement. They always point to him. Notice verse 4 here. I'll come back to 2 in just a second here. Notice four, you shall offer one lamb in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Well, lambs were to be offered morning and evening. This is why when you go down through the list, there's always two lambs. There's one in the morning, one in the evening. This was Jesus. He was there morning and night. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says the next day, John the Baptist Solomon said, There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of The world, he was the Lamb of God. He was that one, that offering that was always before the Lord. And you can't miss that our Lord, even when he dies, um, as we study when they did the evening sacrifices, he dies about the time of the evening sacrifices. So he is truly the Lamb of God. And, And again, it's fun to look at this and you go, this is all pointing forward to the final sacrifice. Certainly, Um, His death brought about, in all reality, the end of the sacrificial system. One, there is no other lambs that replace him. He is the final lamb. He is the final blood brought into the presence of God. There needs no more. And then God brings judgment on Israel in AD 70 and wipes everything out, and they they haven't sacrificed since. And so really, he was truly, physically, and certainly spiritually, the last of the lambs. Now, I love this fact, morning and evening sacrifices. I think that's still our model, isn't it? How many have ever spent time in Spurgeon's devotional? Morning and evening. We, we still name a lot of things like that. That, that God hasn't changed, right? He, he wants our attention when you wake up, and he wants your, your attention before you go to bed. And everything in between. He, he knows what's best for you. And so as we even study the sacrificial system, it is morning and evening coming before God, worshiping him with our offerings, with our lives, because what he has done for us. These are, these are I think, great times of prayer for us as believers. Do you offer up the sacrifice of praise with your lips? Hebrews. What comes out of your mouth when you wake up? I know sometimes we're tired, right? And sometimes if we rehearse what we've said when we woke up, we probably wouldn't be proud of it. 
but, but maybe if we, if, when we study this stuff, we go back and say, Lord, I want, well, I want when I wake up, and, and I think all of us want this and desire this, is, Lord, I want to praise you in the morning. I, I've talked to too many of our seniors um, who have learned to do this through life. And they would probably, if they're honest, would tell you they didn't maybe do it as well when they were young. But through the years of growing in the Lord, they'll talk about their prayer life in the morning, their time with the Lord, and then their time with the Lord that closes out the day. And I think we learn so much from this. And Christians should, we should wake up talking to the Lord, beginning our day, studying Him, knowing Him, talking with Him, praising Him, petitioning Him, asking Him for help. Do you have a prayer list in your Bible? Do you have a prayer list by your nightstand? Where, somewhere where you turn and pray through a list of things. I, I think that's, that's reflected all through, particularly the New Testament. Remember Paul said in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, belo- uh, brethren by, excuse, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, now listen to this, to present your bodies, present continual tense, bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Morning and night is the idea here. Acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship, service of worship. And so there's this constant. Paul later says that we are never ceasing in prayer, right? Always ready on any moment to talk to the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at verse 2. Drop back to verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, command the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offering by fire, a soothing aroma to me at their appointed times. Well, it's interesting. There's words here like offering food, my food, he says. Well, God's not like a man that he needs food in some way. But I think as we study this, the terminology of sacrifice was an acknowledgement that every, all of life was from God and for God and through God. And, you know, as, as we see in the scriptures relate often, Paul will often use that type of terminology as he finishes out a section. It's from him and through him and for him and so forth. And so when we, t- when we start to look at what they're offering, these sacrifices represented their life. They represented everything, right? They, the, and, and particularly in the ancient world, they, they were not building their own kingdoms. They, these, actually, at this point, they lived in tents and, and so forth. But everything was made up of gaining what you could that day to eat and drink and provide. It really is a picture of life. And so whether it's the sacrifice of animals to the drink offerings to the grain offerings, that was life itself. And notice that he says, and he says this several times throughout this passage, but particularly in this first section in verses 2 and 8, he calls it a soothing aroma. Uh, it's a word that speaks of a, a whole sacrifice that has an appeasement to God. It, it's appeasing to him. We would probably use the word it pleases him in the New Testament. And, and it and appeases his wrath that he has against sin. Remember, God is dwelling with sinful men. And he, holy, holy, omniscient uh, God, separated from all sin, has to dwell among them. And so this was the way people could be right with him and he could dwell there with them. And when they did it his way, it was a soothing aroma. He could dwell with them. Even in the pre- presence of a nation that really struggled at times. Notice in verses six, excuse me, three and six, we find words like continual and every day. When we study this, there, there's this continual burnt offering that's going before God. There's a grain offering, there's a drink offering every day. 
Always worship before God. Always his people. Always somebody bringing worship to him. I think I've told you the story. I had an older lady in our very first church. Um, she, she just gave. She didn't have much. She, her husband had died. And, um, but she gave every week. When you're in a little teeny church with just a handful of people, you kind of know those things. And one day I was sitting with her and she said, I love the Old Testament. I now know that the Old Testament was pointing forward and her, her husband had led their family into really wrong views of the Old Testament and uh, it's really a works righteousness of Old Testament things, but she had come out of that. But she says, what I learned though is I never want to come into the presence of God empty-handed. And it was her way, and so she gave weekly and did something for the Lord. She just uh, loved to be in his presence and to give something. And when you study this, this is every day. I want worship. I want my offerings brought before me. What a good thing if we thought about that. Lord, what am I going to give you today? My tongue, my hands, my feet. What am I going to give you today? Well, there you have verse 1 through 8, and that outlines the daily sacrifices. You can read that and... Um, and they, they'll repeat it, and they'll repeat it again as they get into the land. Nine through ten, you come to what there's called the Sabbath sacrifice. The Sabbath sacrifices here. And nine and ten are interesting because it, it's an important thing to God. He says, then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs and one-year-old without defect, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and a drink offering. This is the burnt offering every Sabbath in addition to the continual burnt offering and its drink offering. So as I go through these, and I'm just going to, I'm not going to read all of this, but remember, every day this offering's going, then there's going to be another one. Now we're in the Sabbath one, and then he's going to get into the first month, and then the seventh month, and he's gonna be, but every day all of these are happening. So there's an accumulative of offerings that are happening here. And so now he moves into what is called the Sabbath sacrifices. And it's clear that God desired his people to set a day apart where they could assemble in his presence. He wanted them to rest. He wanted them to rest from their work, from their daily grind of life. And remember, it must have been a grind. You're trying to eke out food once a day. Now, God was providing manna for them and so forth. But it wasn't an easy life. So, so, but they were to set that day apart. And even, the, even though they had to set that apart, he provided enough on Friday, enough manna so they could have enough to get through um, to Sunday there. But it was important to God. And, and it was it was like, you know, we see in the scriptures, you study the book of Genesis, you study Exodus, you study Deuteronomy. We find two main reasons for the Sabbath rest. One is to worship God as creator. The second one was to remember that he brought you out of slavery. Now, I think as Christians, New Testament Christians or New Covenant Christians, we can still do those things. I mean, we live in a beautiful place, don't we? And it isn't hard to look out and see the creation of God day and night going forth and honor him as our creator. So that's why evolution that gets taught to our little children and lied about throughout most you know, TV programs uh, are, are so sad because it just robs God of his creative power. And he never wanted that. He wanted them to at least stop one day, stop one day out of the week and think of God as creator. Think of a God as, and you can't talk about creator without talking about sustainer. One day. I, I think I probably, if you're like me, I think more, more than one day anymore about my creator. 
I've been such an outdoorsman all my life and have spent so much time doing that through the years. I've just, I, I just, so many verses come forward when I see different things, whether it's waves or sunrises or whatever it may be. You, your mind goes to the scriptures. And that's what he wanted. He wanted his people to rest to imitate the Father who rested from his creation. Remember the redemption that they were brought out of. Every Sabbath, notice in this text here, the priests were to take even another two extra lambs now. So they've been doing it all week long. A lamb's been dying every day for the day of the sacrifice. Now they get to the Sabbath on Saturday. They were to kill two more lambs. And they were to do this in the morning sacrifice as a remembrance of their creator and the one who set them free from slavery. Well, today the church meets on Sunday, the first day of the week. That was clear after the resurrection of Christ. It's not been a, it is, you really have to find a really far out argument to try to take that on. It's very clear the Lord wants us to assemble on the first day of the week. And it's interesting there, we remember the Lord, don't we? We come and we learn from his word. We sing praises to him. We're reminded, we often take the Lord's Supper. There we remember that it was the death of Christ that beat our slavery. It was his finished work that brought us out of bondage, right? And we do that repeatedly, right? As often as you do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And so there, we, we still carry on a lot of these things, but in, under the new covenant, under the understanding of Christ has completed everything. And so what a joy for ourselves to sit down on a Sunday morning, remind ourselves that God's sovereign. He's creator. He has all things under his control. And he provided a way of escape for you. That's what we do when we get together. See, God doesn't change. He's immutable. And yet all this pointed to how he was going to do this. When you study the Old Testament, you get into minors and major prophets. One of the things they're constantly after the nation for and they're getting judged for is they did not keep the Sabbath. Now, there's a lot of people that get into the whole legalistic thing of that. That's not what that was about. You did not even set aside a day to worship me. You rejected me as creator. You rejected me as one who rescued you and brought you out of bondage. See, that's what that's about. And you replaced me with dead gods that can't do anything for you. So this is an important thing, and he did not want them to forget this. And so there was a daily sacrifice that was happening, and every Sabbath there was a sacrifice to remind them of these things. Verses 15, excuse me, 11 through 15, as you peruse that, you get into what is the first, the first of the month, or um, maybe you've heard it called the new moon uh, sacrifices. We know we have a new moon every, every month. Well, this was called the new moon sacrifice in a sense. And the, and the importance of this first of the month or this new moon sacrifice is to illustrate by the number of extra sacrifices that he wanted. So, so every month, now every day there's a sacrifice, every Sabbath, and now once a month he requires now two more bulls, if you can see it there, one more ram, a total of nine more lambs, another goat, plus the grain offering and the oil and the wine, in addition to those daily sacrifices and the, and the Sabbath sacrifices. And as the nation developed, these sacrifices became part of their family worship. Certainly, Sabbath was an important day. You, nobody worked. Shops were shut down. Streets became empty. Everything was centered around the tabernacle and, and the worship of God. And then, and then every month, you got together the new moon. 
And the family would come together and they would offer sacrifices and they would praise God and they would together as this nation offer up praise to God. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you can't help but think of Sunday night, right? We got together Sunday night, a whole pile of us in here, and watched people give testimony to God rescuing them from their sins. And we stopped, and we stopped what we were doing, and we didn't watch whatever we would normally watch on Sunday night, and we didn't go wherever we normally would go on Sunday night. We came here, and we, and we sat there, and they gave testimony to Jesus Christ rescuing them. See, we still do these things, and it, but it's all under the finished work of Christ now. But it tells you God loves to gather his people. I, I get asked for pastors all the time when I go to a conference and say, how do you get your people together so much? I, you know, I go, I go on your website and see you guys have a Wednesday night service. There seems to be a lot of people there. How do you do that? We can barely get them there on Sunday mornings. One, I think, I don't know if they're preaching Christ, because Christ draws you to himself, right? Lift him up, he'll draw what? All people to himself. I think that's one of the things this church has done well for a long time, and we keep adding men and, and finding men who want to keep doing that, and that's what God uses that. But he wants us to gather. My, my mentor was so good at this. Um, when I first started getting in the ministry, just a young guy, he always talked about, Scott, gather God's people. Get them together. Get them together. Get them together. Get them together over food, <laughs> over praise, over worship. Get them together. It's good. God has always wanted his people to gather. And yet today in America, we hardly, it's hard to get people to come out on a night or, or something extra more than an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. See, God is a God who gathers his people. I love this. Look for opportunities for family worship. You know, when you study this, all work ceases on these certain days. Can you imagine shutting down everything? They tell me, and I, of course I wasn't raised in the South, most of you, many of you were, but there was a time, and some of you can tell stories that, I mean, there was nobody in the streets in the South, right? I was raised in California, it was never like that in my days. <laughs> Very pagan out there. But some of you have told me that there was nothing, man. You, can't, you couldn't buy a bottle of alcohol if your life depended on it. I, we were in Alabama not too many years ago, and we were there with the kids for baseball or something like that. And, and, they, <laughs> the, and I had noticed there was all these bars locking up uh, of these places. And we went into somewhere, and there was no alcohol after such and such time. I asked them, what's going on? Well, don't you know this is a dry county? I go, what's a dry county? I never even heard of that. I live in California. Look, everything stopped because God was central to worship. That was what he wanted. That was where his blessing came from. Maybe churches struggle today because they don't give God any time. They read a verse on Instagram and call that their devotions. They spend no time with him morning and evenings. They don't gather together. And that's what happened to the nation. And when you study it, they just moved away from that. And then they would do it, here's another problem, they would do it legalistically. They would go to temple in the morning and sacrifice their babies in the afternoon to Baal. Well, again, these, these things all point to Christ, particularly things like new moon. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, therefore no man is to act as your judge in regarding to food or to drink in respect of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Those are all the things we're talking about in this text. 
Because they were saying that was total, a total, the Jews were just pounding on the Christians because they weren't keeping all these different things. That's what he's after. But those are important. Um, because if handled right, the Jews would have never done what they did to Christ because it would have pointed them there. Because that's what Paul says in the next verse. Because these things are a mere shadow. You've got all hooked up with a shadow instead of the real thing because those all point to Christ. And he says, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so there's people who want to do a lot of this stuff. They want to get together and they want to have certain rituals and all these things, but they never get to the substance of Christ. I love that term in this. NASB does a great job of that word. He is the substance. Without it, you have nothing. You just have a shadow. You ever try to hug a shadow? It's not very warm and inviting, is it? Christ is the real deal. He's the sweet aroma of all worship. 16 through 25, as you peruse that, we get into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this is fascinating. This is one of the first of the great national feasts that they would get involved in. It fell on the first month of their year, which would be Nason, and that's in April, March and April. That was their start of their year, that Hebrew calendar. And, and so when that came around, now you have another feast. So you have the daily sacrifices. You have the sacrifice on the Sabbath. You have the new moon Sab- uh, festival um, feast. And now, on the very first month of the, of the Hebrew year, you have this feast of unleavened bread. And this was, this was important to them. And this was to be celebrated right after Passover. This is a feast that came. And in fact, in time, they kind of became part together. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread became one. But you'll notice as you kind of peruse down through this, look, there's an, another additional two bulls that would be given. Another ram. Another total of nine lambs would be given. Another goat would be offered here. Again, see the main focus was the obligation of the, the priest here to establish another day of rest. Another day of rest on this gathering of this Feast of Unleavened Bread and to assemble the whole nation together. You see, you start to get the idea that it wasn't showing up for an hour and a half one time and maybe, you know, drop a few coins in the fountains. They were giving their lives to the worship of God. That's what God wanted. And that's where God blessed them when they did that. And so you have the Feast of the Passover and the Unleavened Bread they soon kind of overlapped, and really, by the time you get to Jesus' day, as I said, they became one. And, and the New Testament just expounds on the beauty and the imagery of Jesus being this final Passover lamb. He's the last lamb. He dies on Passover. Just incredible truth that we just cling to. I was reading one commentary, and I, I've never seen this before, or at least I couldn't remember that I had. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when you get into Matthew 17, it says that the disciples, when they awoke, they saw that Jesus was talking to Moses and, Eli- Moses and Elijah. But it doesn't tell us where, what they were saying. But Luke 9 does. And it's really fascinating. Luke 9, chapter 30, verse 31. And behold, the two men who were talking with them, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, were speaking of what? Of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, now to me, that's fascinating. The Passover was about what? A lamb that would die, and, and, they, and its blood on the doorpost would secure their life, and the death angel would pass over, and it was the departure 
of this, that land, departure from the bondage and the slavery. And so when you get into that scene, here's Moses and Elijah talking about Jesus, who is the final Passover lamb, who is about to depart. You start to think about all of the imagery of the Old Testament. It's all fulfilled completely, even in the departure of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I'd love to have been in that conversation. And then you get into places like John 19, 36, and it tells us that, of course, Jesus is the final Passover lamb, but not a bone was broken as he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of the psalmist. And so when you get into this Feast of Unleavened Bread, as Christians, we look at this, and, and, and particularly there, you've got the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and there's where they clean out the leaven, right? They're sort of clean out their houses. They're to take these days and make sure there's no leaven in their house. And it was a teaching of cleaning out sin. And so you have the remembrance of the Passover. You have the, uh, the reminder to get sin out of your home, to get sin out of your life in this, this leaven that had made its way. And if you know leaven and yeast, it will get into the air, right? It, and so they're to clean that out. And then you come to the New Testament. Of course, these type of terms are used there. You remember in our study in 1 Corinthians 5 on the immorality of a man who was uh, in a immoral relationship with his mother-in-law in chapter 5 there, but verse 7, after he rebukes that and talks about they should have been disciplining him, he turns and says, clean out, Paul says, that clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. If Christ died for you, you're free of your sin. So why would you want to put more in your life? And then he says this, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So now we're getting this idea of freedom from sin. Christ is our Passover. All of this Old Testament terminology is all fulfilled in Christ. You see it in verse after verse. Then verse 80 says there, this, Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old, old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's such a, I mean, that's just Old Testament terminology all coming in through the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in words, he's saying this, how can you let this happen in your midst when you are free from your sin in Christ who was your final Passover land? Get it out of your life. And you either get it out because Christ is in it or you don't get it out because Christ isn't in it. I think that's where the Bible is that clear. Now you say, well, Scotty, you know, can we struggle? Absolutely. But there is a desire in your heart not to be ruled by your sin anymore. And you have the empowerment of the Spirit to give you victory over that. He who has overcome the world is in what? He's in us. And so he is the great overcomer. 26 to 31, and i got to get moving here, the Feast of Weeks. Um, this was the second big national feast that came along. This feast is also referred to, you might see it as a feast of the first fruits. Um, it was uh, celebrated midsummer, um, early kind of June, uh, July, early July, as the barley um, uh, harvest came in. And it was just about 50 days, seven weeks is the, really the terminology, seven again, um, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Later, it's referred to in the Greek, it's called the what? Pentecost. This is what Paul was headed back. He wanted to get back to celebrate Pentecost. Of course, this is where the birth of the church, there's great connections. But you'll see again in these last few verses in 20, 
8 here that now you add this to the sacrifices, right? So you have, the fir- you have every day, you have the Sabbath, you have the new moon, you have the, the first of the feast at the beginning of the year. Now this feast is added, and it requires, just like these other ones, two bulls, a ram, nine more lambs, another goat, all the grain, oil, and wine on top of that, and yet it's another bringing together the nation to worship God. Over and over he keeps bringing them together. And of course, what a beautiful connection to the birth of the church, which would have been Pentecost. Um, God establishes his new covenant through Christ alone. He gathers his bride to himself called the church. Christ is often referred to as the first fruits. It refers to his atonement. It refers to his resurrection. It refers to his preeminence. Over and over we see that first fruits speaking of him. And look, we gather because of Jesus Christ. None of us are here for any other reason. None of us are saved other than Jesus Christ. He is the first fruit of our salvation. And he promises, we just got through 1 Corinthians 15, he promises to be the first fruit of our resurrection. Because he bore the fruit, we will be blessed. Well, second thought here as we move into chapter 29, there is the sobering sacrifice for sin and the joy of God's provision. Chapter 29 Well, you get into the first 11 verses in chapter 29 and you you begin to see God's attention put towards another seventh month. And and you see the first of the seventh months. In here, in this text, we'll see the feast of the tabernacles or trumpets. That term gets switched around a couple times. And then you see the day of atonement in this section. Look at verses 1, and uh, now in the seventh month, so now we're adding another one, right? On the first day of the month, so that's another one, then drop down to verse 7, then on the tenth day of this seventh month, so this seventh month is a big one. You thought you were getting together a lot already? Wait till the seventh month comes along. You get together all the time. And you go, you know, how do you keep your shop open? How do you make money? God provides. I don't know how many times when people, men have told me, Scott, I just can't come to church. You know, I work like five, six days a week. It's my only day to get things done. I, I don't know how many times guys have told me. I mean, I was a rancher. I did all that stuff. I know how difficult it is. Get up early in the morning, feed cows before you go to church. Do all that stuff. But I said, man, do you believe in God? Is your faith in him? Do you, do you think he can't provide for you? Have you not set time aside to worship him? When you get into this seventh month, this is what's so fascinating about chapter 29. It's, it's, their, it's probably their biggest month of the year of gathering. There is, you see that in one, and then you see it in seven. Sorry, I lost my, my I got all excited there. Um, uh, then go right down to verse 12. Then on the 15th day, so the first day of the month in verse 1, in verse 7, the 10th day of the month, and then on the 15th day of the seventh month. And, and then you have all your Sabbaths going and your everyday offerings and all of that. All that's happening. This is a huge month. They're gathering. And so God's word, I think what's happening here, brothers and sisters, he's making it clear of the importance of this month of worship for this nation of Israel. And, and look, it not only contains the first seventh month sacrifices, but it includes the Day of Atonement and the Feast of the Tabernacles. And notice in verse 1, he says, it will be to you a day of blowing trumpets. This is a This is a glorious day, this first day of the seventh month, man. This is something the family, if you are walking with God, your family looked forward to this. 
I, I, I can't, I don't know how to express it. Like, I think maybe how we look forward to baptisms, right? You're coming in, it's blowing a trumpet. It's the word trumpet, there's an interesting word. Sometimes it's translated shouting. And it's used sometimes for trumpets and shouting. We see it in Jericho in that. So it's, uh, some guys I read said it, it's a feast of shouting. Shout to the Lord, right? Remember that song we used to sing that? I mean, that's where this comes from, this kind of idea here. And so here you have all of this happening. You'll be blowing trumpets. It's a special month. But yet in this month, what's interesting is you have on the first day a, a very exciting blowing of trumpets, shouting. But then you have the great day of sorrow, which, which you can't get around the day of atonement. This is where the sin, this nation mourns over its sin and the goats are brought and the priest lays his hand transferring symbolically the sins of the nation onto one and that one dies. Its blood is brought into the Holy of Holies. The other is led away showing their sins are forgiven. It's sobering in the middle of this month as well. And so what a, what a wild month of blowing trumpets and shouting and then remembering our sin and that our nation uh, fails to walk with God and individuals fail to walk with God. And so it's a reminder of what God has done, what he's doing, and it's a reminder of how much they needed him. Now, being the first of the seven months, uh, the sacrifice of bulls, rams, lambs, a goat, the grain and oil and wine offering was still in place, verses 1 through 6, you can see that. But there's all this stuff that comes in addition to that when you look at this. And then this led, verse 7, to to the Day of Atonement. So this first feast comes by, this fat tabernacle trumpet feast, and they, they do all this. They have all this grain offering. They do all this, plus they're going to do every day, plus they're going to do Sabbaths on this. And each of those days, they're not going to work. Everything's going to be shut down. And then, verse 7, they come to this holy convocation again. And you'll see it's used in verse 1 as well, and then also 7 and also 12. A holy assembly of the people. They got together to remember these things. The Day of Atonement was a very important day. One writer, Benz, who I've enjoyed reading some of his stuff on this, he called it the crown of the whole sacrificial system. It was the day that their sins were forgiven. And it brought them together in a beautiful way. Now, now here it doesn't tell us much about it. Leviticus chapter 16, you remember in chapter 23, we spent a lot of time in atoning work uh, there on that day. But more importantly, as we'll look in a minute here, it really is outlined in Hebrews chapter 9 in the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It all is looking forward to that. But it was a time to remember their shame, in a sense. Um, they came and realized if that lamb doesn't die for them, they're not going to be forgiven. It was sobering to them. And that, I mean, you can imagine how quiet the nation was as that high priest puts his hands on those lambs, symbolically transferring the sins of the nation. And one's throat is slit and the blood is put into a basin. And quietly he walks into the presence of God and offers that. The others led away. I mean, that's probably sobering, right? You, they know God is holy by now. They've seen his holy presence. They've seen the reflection of him off of the face of Moses. They know what they're dealing with in a sense. And so it was quite sobering. 
was a time for deep sorrow and soul searching, I would imagine. That was what it was meant for. It was time to remember that they had failed the Lord. But then on the heels of that, in the beginning of that, and after that are these great feasts of joy, right? Andrew Bonar is um, one of my favorite old Scottish preachers. Um, him writing on this section, and I actually took this out of the Leviticus 16 section, said this, sorrow does not take away the sin. As they're talking about that the nation would have, most of the writers all talk about that there would, had to be a sense of solemnness during the Day of Atonement. And, but, but we know that just being sorry doesn't get your sins forgiven, right? But there is something good to sorrow, right? True biblical repentance brings about a true godly sorrow. Second uh, Corinthians 7 tells us. So, so he says this, so sorrow does not take away the sin, but it takes away the taste of it. I thought that was good. The pleasant taste of it. See, sorrow helps you realize that that pleasant pleasure that I indulged in wasn't really that pleasurable in the, in the presence of God. He goes on to say, it does not empty out the vessel, but it frees the empty vessel or pardons the soul from the former desire for the things of this earth. It is thus that the Lord's children pass through the fire and water to a more wealthy place when their sorrow over their sin, realizing that it costs such a penalty. Now, in this case, it was a, it was a goat that died. An innocent, unblemished lamb would die in its place. And yet they had to realize that this was done because of them. So the Day of Atonement added to the sacrifice. <laughs> if you look down through this text, it added yet another bull, another ram, seven more lambs. Um, all that made up part of this sin offering. And remember, that sin offering was given. It was completely burned up. The priest and the, and the offerer who offered a sin offering did not eat of that. It was totally given to God. And the rest was taken outside the camp and burned up. So this was a solemn sacrifice. Notice in verse 12 in this text, that on the 15th day of the seventh month you shall have a holy convocation and you shall do no laborious work and you shall observe the feast to the Lord for seven days. Well, this is interesting. This is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Trumpets or Shouting that is referred to and it's observed for the next seven days. So you have all of this happening in the seventh month. And, and this is where they gathered together. There was this great gathering of the nation and the harvest of fruit would come in and they would display to God gratitude and thanksgiving and joy for his bountiful provision. And they're, and they're reminded of this. And so you have, the, you have this day of atonement, sobering, this lamb dies in your place, one's led away, and then you start this, this feast of reminding yourself that God provides. And for seven days, there'll be eight at it, you'll see there's an eighth day, but seven days, there's no work. He shuts the entire nation down. Again. I mean, some of you who own businesses are going, you're going, man, how are they making money? <laughs> God provides for his children when you obey him. And it's quite amazing, isn't it? Now, they gather together in this Feast of Tabernacles, or later called Booths. Remember, it gets called Booths. And, you, and if, you're, if you go down Granada or you're around some of... Um, uh, the local synagogues there, the people there, they'll set up booths. You'll see this every year. Um, we've watched this happen. And, and those booths were to remind them that that's the way they once lived as, as they were exited out, of, uh, exited out of Egypt 
and the Passover lamb was sacrificed for them, and then God provided for them, and they lived in these makeshift, makeshift dwellings. Now, it was a reminder, if God could do that, if God could deliver you out of the king of Egypt and all of the 400 years of slavery, bring you out of there through the death angel, through the Passover lamb, provide for you for 40 years wandering through the desert, he certainly should be given thanks for the fruit that comes in. That's what he's doing here with them. Shut down everything, get together for seven days, do it every day, and worship me and thank me for what I've done for you. Man, what a, an amazing thing when you think about how much time they spent doing that. And so the first day of the feast, you'll notice there, the first day of the Feast of the Tabernacles or Booth was highlighted with this massive sacrifice. Now 13 bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs, and 1 goat. You see that? And then notice as you read along, this is where you've been reading in your Bible and you kind of see this and it seems repetitive, but you didn't read close enough because each day the bull drops one number. Isn't that fascinating? And you're probably hoping I'm going to tell you why they do that, and I don't know. <laughs> and everybody I read didn't know <laughs> why they did it. And so, but each day the number of bulls it's a, d- d- diminishes by one. You see it there. And so they get all the way to the seventh day, and now they're down to seven bulls, two rams, 14 lambs, one goat would be offered. And, and, and there's really just no definitive answer, at least the probably six, seven commentaries that I searched trying to read through Hebrew scholars. But the best answers that I heard, the best answers that I heard was not trying to figure that out, but to see where it was pointing. It was all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a shadow um, that was passing away the sacrificial system that was going to be fully eclipsed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at Hebrews 9. We'll close here, Hebrews chapter 9. What a magnificent chapter in the book of Hebrews. We all love the book of Hebrews. It's such a great commentary to the Old Testament. But this particular passage really focuses in on the feast and the regulations and, and uh, all the sacrifices and shows how it all came about. Follow down with me in this beautiful chapter, Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant, that would be the old covenant, had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. Divine worship and earthly sanctuaries were important to God. They're still important to him. This building and what we do with it and us meeting it is important to God. There's always a purpose for those things. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstands and the table and the sacred bread. And this was called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Having a golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant, covered by all sides with gold, in which a, was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the, tab, in the tables of the, com, uh, the covenant. And above it were cherubims of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Isn't that interesting? Well, you said the Old Testament. You can talk about the details of them. Why does he say that? Why does the writer say that? Well, one, they're gone. <laughs> There's movies trying to still find the ark, right? You know, Harrison Ford and those guys. Where's that thing at? Many people believe Jeremiah hit it probably somewhere before Babylon came in and, and so forth. We, hopefully they don't find it because they'll start the church of the first Ark of the Covenant or something like that and they'll worship that. And I think that's the reason. 
these things are irrelevant now. Christ has surpassed them. Christ brings you before the mercy seat. Christ's blood atones for your sins. Not some goat. He is the lampstand. He's the showbread. Eat me, Jesus says, and have eternal life. If you don't eat me, you won't have eternal life. I mean, he's all of that. We've seen that all the way working through the Pentateuch together. Look at verse 6. Now then, when these things have have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the, the divine worship, right? We've just looked at that, right? Man, day after day, month after month, all of that was going on. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. So they could only come into the first section, take care of the showbread, uh, changing of the oil for the lamp, those type of things, not without taking blood. The only way into the, 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 the presence of God was through blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That's the day of atonement. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. According, both the gifts and the sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. People who still try to work their way to God, bring their offering into God. God, I did this. God, I gave that. God, I said this repeatedly. They cannot cleanse your conscience. This is why it's so important. When Paul says, my conscience is clear. He says that several times through the scriptures. This is one who put people to death, right? tortured the church, did all these things before his salvation. Because it was the blood of Christ that cleansed his conscience, not his works. And yet you and I all have relatives who still do things that think they'll be right with God if they do this or this. Every Sunday, people will show up in this building thinking if they go to this building, if they go where those people there are praising God, maybe, maybe somehow I won't have to pay for what I did. That's what man, how man comes. You never get your conscience cleared through works. Verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. These things that people still get all wound up about. Literally, that, that lady that I told you about that had got saved, it came to our church. Her family, her husband went out in the desert because we lived out in the desert and said he saw Moses and came back and it formed a whole religion that has got his whole family. And, and they were literally sacrificing animals in their backyard when we first met them. He died. And then God saved her, saved her, actually saved her son first, who later, after I left, became an elder in that church, um, great man of God, and then saved her, and they abandoned all those things. And they would read passages like this and say, Scott, we would, we would do this stuff. We would form these type of images and stuff to, to have this kind of Old Testament worship. We would impose on ourselves, look at verse 10, regulations for the body. They would impose that. But look at verse 11. But. <laughs> you got to love conjunctions. I have that circle in my Bible. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, he entered through a greater and more per perfect tabernacle. He went to heaven, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having attained an eternal redemption. Remember, they're working on continual redemption. 
Every year, that Day of Atonement was a, one year they got their sins atoned. And then they had to bring their own offerings, their sin offerings that had to be burned. This had to be over and over and over and over. Until it got to the point where it really wasn't all that spiritual to them anymore. It wasn't meaningful. It should have been. And I imagine there were men like Moses and other godly men and women who did. And you'll meet them someday. But for most of them, didn't see that. Jesus comes not with the blood of his creation, because he created the bulls and goats, right? He comes with his own blood. And he's not just in the outer part of the tent, he's in the inner part of the tent. He's offering it before God himself. And he's gaining an eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if, for if... (laughs) The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer. Remember we talked about that. Sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of flesh. If that gave them temporary cleansing, which it did. God forgave them of their sins through that temporary, but they had to do it over and over. If that forgave them of their sins, and I love the way the writer does this. Probably, I think it's some, one of Paul's dear friends that wrote this maybe. Um, that's my thought here. But how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. I mean, isn't that worthy of an amen? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You don't have to work yourself to God. That's why salvation is by faith, not by works. Not by any works of righteousness that you have done. You can't get yourself there. It's by the finished work of Christ. All this was pointing to a greater sacrifice, wasn't it? Verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Amen. It isn't Eliezer or Phineas or Scott or anybody else. I mean, there's no, none of us can mediate this. this is medi- he's the mediator of the new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It wa- is what that's telling you is Christ's work washed all the way back to these people who believed by faith. I don't know there was a lot of them, but there were some of them, and you'll meet them because God always has a remnant. You can go on. I just, I'm out of time to read all those uh, rest of that passage. Boy, is that a joyable passage to read when you think about this. Back in our text, just real quickly, I'm going to close this, verse 35. We come to this final day. There's seven days. He says, keep seven days. And then he says he throws in an eighth day in verse 35. And I haven't quite figured all that out. Um, and I didn't find real good answers as I read through it. But it's interesting, Jesus in John chapter 7 shows up on the eighth day of this feast and he tells them I got water that's living water it's fascinating he shows up on this I remember they're trying to get him to go up there he doesn't go up then he shows up on the last day of the feast there and he he is the very word of God made flesh he's dwelling among them he's there to die for them and on that last day chapter 7 verse 37 of John the great day of the feast. This is the final day. It's all coming together. You've, you've, you've taken the whole week off. You've, sacrific- you've been part of the sacrificial system. There's been a rejoicing of the provision of God throughout this whole thing. And the final day, Jesus shows up, and instead of talking about the greatness of the sacrifices and the greatness of God, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
They've dumped the last of the wine out, the last of the grain. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And certainly pointing towards the work of the Spirit that will come. So, wow. What an amazing two chapters. I don't know how many times I've read those two chapters and just kind of blew through them because they're a little bit repetitive. And then you stop to think how important God loves to gather his children. And how important today, us who are new covenant believers... Under the blood of Jesus Christ, we gather and we get excited about what he did. I hope you're still excited about your salvation. Never gets old, does it? Preach the gospel to yourself. Morning and evenings, worship God. Probably at noon too, all right? Father, thank you for this time. What an exciting little passage of scripture. Um, what, a, what a reminder that the, the bottomless truth of your scriptures. We keep digging and keep seeing things we've never seen before, Lord. Uh, keep helping us learn, Lord, as we study together, Lord. Thank you for so many in this room that I know study well and teach well and, and study and apply to their own lives, Lord. I pray you continue to grip many of us in this room. It's not all of us, Lord, to be gripped by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ to the point where we can't keep it in, that we've got to tell somebody. We've got to disciple somebody. We've got to share our testimony with somebody. We've got to tell somebody what our God and Savior has done for us, Lord. Lord, thank you that you're the fulfillment of all those. Thank you that we don't have to keep all this to get to you. You did it all. And Lord, may we want to constantly gather to worship and praise you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.